Hello, and welcome to another episode of At Any Rate. I'm your host, Natasha Kanova, head of JP Morgan's Global Commodities Research. And today we want to discuss the cross-commodity outlook for the second half of 2022. I'm joined today by Shika Chaturvedi, head of our global gas research, Tracy Allen, head of agricultural commodities research, and Greg Shear, who heads uh, up our metals research at JP Morgan. Welcome, guys, and thank you so much for joining me today. So despite the second quarter pullback in the metals prices, um, Bloomberg Commodities Index had a spectacular performance so far this year. It's up over 30% year to date. Uh, majority of that has been driven by a blistering 86% increase in the energy price basket, uh, considering the geopolitical situation in, uh, in Europe at the moment. Despite the strong performance, the case for commodities going forward is just as strong in our view. This week, we put our mid-year outlook, uh, which we titled Illiquid Fragility. Um, was, while macro risks are clearly becoming more two-sided, conditions of acute scarcity persist across nearly all the commodities. Um, so we are entering in the Northern Hemisphere summer. This is the traditional peak demand season, especially for oil and oil products. Uh, so everybody's driving on vacation. Um, but at the same time, if you look across commodity inventories on aggregate, the inventories are almost 20% below historical norms. At the same time, the lack of inventory buffer is leaving the markets very vulnerable to unplanned supply outages. And there are many, you know, in the, in the case of oil, we have the spiraling Libyan protests. Uh, in the case of agriculture, we have the worsening US crop conditions. And then we, uh, we're monitoring very closely the active hurricane season in the Atlantic. With physical stocks very low, especially relative to pre-pandemic levels, the realized volatility on the Bloomberg Commodity Index has more than doubled. Um, so half of that surge occurred since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, oil volatility is currently sitting at about 50%. That's about one and a half times uh, the average historical volatility. Diesel volatility is about 70%. Um, so that's three times higher. And then, you know, when we look at the agriculture sector, very similar in some products, the volatility doubled or even tripled. The surging volatility has in turn drained liquidity, uh, limiting outright trading activity and volumes. When we look at the trading volumes, uh, aggregate open interest across all commodities fell 17% since the start of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, with futures markets open interest alone almost uh, down almost 20%. And clearly, amid the strained liquidity, any small um, shock to supply will continue to have outsized impacts on prices. Uh, so overall, our baseline view calls for 10% BCOM return by the end of the summer and 5% year and five return by, by the year end. So I'll start with oil and we'll move after that to, to the rest of the commodities uh, complex. Um, so in the case of oil, what remains uh, critical in our view is that the range of near-term price outcomes for commodities has become extreme uh, given the strained liquidity. Uh, and for oil, though, our price forecast calls for prices normalizing at around current levels. Uh, if we look at the upside, uh, that's about $140, uh, per barrel short-term upside uh, should oil eventually fall under the Western secondary sanctions and the full insurance ban. Uh, Russian crude is flowing, um, but at the same time, global crude markets have tightened considerably. And the main reason for that is that it takes about three and a half times longer to transit Russian oil at the moment. So if previously Russia was shipping oil to Europe, and it was about 11 days uh, there and back trip. On average now, it takes about 30 to 50 day increase in transit time 
uh, to ship Russian crude to India's eastern and western coasts. Uh, nevertheless, Russian oil is in the market. Uh, Russia today is selling more crude than it did prior to the war. And uh, our view, actually, we believe that uh, the oil products dislocation is actually a significant bigger issue. Um, so um, Russia is selling its crude, but it has difficulty selling its products. Uh, we believe that the Russian oil refining capacity will be will remain significantly reduced for the foreseeable future, and spare refining capacity in China is sidelined. Um, so because of that, our view is that the shortages of clean products like gasoline and diesel that we're experiencing today, uh, pretty much across the Western world, yes, it's Europe and United States, that those shortages will get only worse as demand for transport fuels picks up during the Northern Hemisphere summer. Um, so, Shika, moving to um, to gas, um, your view has been since since the start of the Russian conflict that the European natural gas market is one supply disruption away from pricing near depletion. So, Europe survived winter. Now we in summer. Um, the European uh, storage is uh, just shy of five year averages. Um, but at the same time, it did seem that this supply disruption you were warning us about that this happened this week and TTF price, the European gas price spiked to over 140 euros per megawatt hour. Where do we go from here? Yes, thanks for having me, Natasha. It's been quite an eventful week in the European natural gas market and you're absolutely right. We are literally um, sitting at 52% full in storage, which is virtually on top of the five-year average, but these supply issues have been creeping in even since like early May. And what I would say in early May, you know, there was issues around the European consumers and whether or not that they would pay in rubles, in which we saw Poland, Bulgaria, Finland, Netherlands, and Denmark cut off from Russian gas supplies. And the market handled that really well. But this week, this week was a game changer. And it's because Gazprom reduced flows by 60% on Nord Stream 1, citing issues in getting a repaired turbine necessary to help flow gas along the pipeline. The turbine was being repaired by Siemens Energy in Canada, and because of Canadian sanctions on Gazprom specifically, Siemens is unable to return the repaired turbine at the current time. Germany has suggested that this is a political move by Russia, but Gazprom CEO has said that it, this, this uh, flow cut was not deliberate and that there was a potential to flow more gas to Germany through Nord Stream 2, a pipeline we haven't heard about in a few months. So we don't think that that's going to be a likely solution. Uh, rather, the route Germany appears to be taking is to find ways to conserve energy. Um, and also, in addition to the flow reduction in Nord Stream 1, ENI has reported that Gazprom has lowered flows to Italy as well. And um, while initially the flows were reported reduced at 15% earlier in the week, um, yesterday they reported that flows were down by 35%. And I still haven't really been able to figure out the reason why behind that. But it is noticeable, or actually notable, that the two largest consumers of Russian pipeline gas are dealing with significantly reduced flows at the same time, and at a time when the global LNG supply um, has shrunk. And so when we look at from a global LNG supply perspective, there was an explosion at the Freeport LNG facility in the US on June 8th, and that resulted in a 3.5% reduction in daily LNG supply in the global LNG markets. And now with company statements, um, we are able to ascertain that basically that disruption is likely to remain in place for the next three months. And we don't expect Freeport LNG to resume at full capacity until late 2022. 
So as a result, we estimate the 7.2 BCM of LNG supply will just essentially not exist in, in the global market this year over the remainder of the year. And that only represents about 1.4% of total global LNG supply expected this year. But it's really important when, in fact, if when or if Asia and South America actually begin to compete strongly against Europe for LNG this summer, particularly with Europe's kind of shortage from Russian supply. The other factor I just want to quickly point out that's going on in the LNG market is that her, one of the major global LNG suppliers um, into the market is facing its own domestic energy crisis, and, and that's mm -hmm. Australia. Australia. And, it's, it's, you know, it's concentrated in Eastern Australia. It's been due to some uh, issues with the coal fleet um, and uh, the, the age of the coal fleet, as well as the fact that there's been extremely cold temperatures that have been experienced in Eastern Australia. And what concerns us the most about the current situation um, is the potential policy decision that could interfere with current trade of Australian LNG at coal exports. And the reason why we're concerned is because there is a precedent for this action by policymakers in Australia. And we observed that in 2017 when Western Australia actually had its own gas shortage. So, you know, we're in a situation where Europe has to rely more heavily on the LNG market to fill the Russian void. And we have a situation where the LNG supply market is actually constricted or has been constrained further. And so what we've right. done to try to address the pricing impacts of all of this, uh, which is incredibly difficult, is we set up three scenarios. In the first scenario, we assume that all of this will get fixed by North, uh, by August, uh, by some, some way, somehow. Um, and essentially it suggests that 2022 TTF price would likely have to average 100 euros per megawatt hour. Um, in scenario two, though, what we expect is that the current sort of outages that are in place right now continue through the end of 22 and even into 2023. And what we find is that while things are fine in 2022, uh, from a storage perspective, likely resulting in price averaging around 110 euros per megawatt hour over the remainder of the year, 2023, Europe's goal to reach 90% full um, gets incredibly difficult by the end of the injection season. In fact, I can only get it to 80% full. And in that case, if they're okay with that and they're fine with that, then you know we're still averaging around 110 euros per megawatt hour, but it could be higher if they're not fine with that level. The mm -hmm. last place, um, and I think this is kind of the worst case scenario is if Russia decides to reduce flows completely to Nord Stream 1. And in this scenario, and we've discussed this before at the start of the war, it's really you know a, a push to, to, to create demand destruction, price-related demand destruction. So we estimate that price would have to average 160 euros per megawatt hour over the remainder of the year. And um, in 2023, it's it's kind of who knows how price how high price has to go. So we set the floor at 200 euros per megawatt hour um, with clearly significant upside risk. Um, and if price-related demand destruction or behavioral changes in energy usage manifests, then we can envision some price relief, but it's going to be from really high levels. Um, Shika, thank you so much for that. Um, so Tracy, food security concerns have intensified over the quarters. Ukraine's Black Sea ports have remained closed while exportable supplies of grain and oil seeds remain historically low. We already have examples of uh, rationing taking place, uh, supermarkets in the UK and in Germany. Uh, pretty much rationing the amount of vegetable oil you can buy in those supermarkets up to two bottles. Um, you have revised your agricultural commodity prices forecasts higher for longer, 
but investors have reduced links across all agricultural markets quite aggressively over, over the months. Uh, and prices seem to be in a consolidation pattern. Where is the risk bias going forward? Thanks so much, Natasha. I mean, even from these current levels, we we maintain the view that there is far more upside for the sector uh, over the, the the months ahead, over the next year, than there is uh, to the downside. And that's largely driven by what has really been a shift in our view over the last quarter, that there doesn't seem to be any imminent opening of Ukraine's Black Sea ports. And these are really critical ports. They're deep sea ports that move the vast majority of the bulk wheat, corn and sunflower oil uh, to the rest of the world. And as you rightly point out, we're already seeing rationing at the supermarkets around vegetable oil availability, uh, particularly across Europe for the time being. So from where we are currently, we, we have had, as you rightly point out, a, quite a significant flush out of investor length, particularly across the corn market, the wheat market, uh, mainly um, over, over the last four weeks. And I think a lot of that had been driven by expectations that the intergovernmental work around, you know, the intent to open up humanitarian corridors for safe passage of Ukrainian food products, that that, that, that situation would, would open up these ports. And it's become very, very apparent that Despite those good intentions, it's not something that Russia is going to be agreeable to, you know, anytime soon in the event of, um, you know, un unless the West were to agree to, to rolling back sanctions. And that's simply not the case here and now. So from an agricultural market point of view, we're actually reestablishing a lot of length. That's, that's certainly been the case across the core market. Um, our, our forecast for the second quarter at $8 is about to be to be hit in terms of spot pricing currently. We see prices moving up uh, towards $9 per average through the third quarter. And outside of the constraints around you know, exports in Ukraine, we have to be aware that the, the winter wheat harvest is about to commence. And so domestic storages in Ukraine are super full. They're overflowing. The logistics are a huge challenge and, and, and concern here. Um, those those volumes are not going to move on to the world market in any meaningful volume, it, you know, for a very long period. We can't see those moving on to the world market really until the 2023 uh, year, year commences. And, and we certainly hope that that will occur by then. Um, outside of Ukraine, you know, we know that Russia is, where possible, uh, still maintaining quite a strong export profile of wheat. Uh, and that's been providing some, um, you know, movement of those flows into the world market. Outside of the Black Sea, however, production prospects have, have deteriorated over the last few months. Uh, we're very aware of the warm conditions and perhaps slightly envious to a certain extent of the warm conditions across much of the US currently. They've, they've returned to, to Europe more recently. But from a crop point of view, it's happening at you know a reasonably adverse time. Um, there does appear to be a heat ridge moving across the Midwest currently, which is providing a lot of upside risk here for, for corn prices. Um, it has been driving the re-establishment of length from investors here. Uh, and, and as I said, we, we continue to maintain a view that suggests that world exportable supplies of these grains and also oil seeds are likely to be constrained through the course of this year and next. And that's why we see that, you know, there is quite a significant scope for prices to move to, to quite honestly, to parabolic levels in the event of, you know, disappointments in supply out of the likes of the U.S., and, and Europe um, off the back of this, this warm and what appears to be quite dry weather over the next four to six weeks. 
Um, the demand side is also interesting. We've had very stable human consumption, which is, is very typical um, of, of the agricultural markets. We don't see too much demand destruction for hum human food consumption typically. It's reasonably inelastic. Animal feed demand does change and it has done. We have seen a very strong pullback there. Um, but the biofuel sector, you know, is, is very, very relevant and topical at the moment, of course, adding to domestic fuel availability, uh, you know, helping to decarbonize the fleets and, and road fuels, particularly aviation fuels, uh, and, and also improving domestic uh, fuel security. So we have actually seen quite uh, sustained, robust biofuel demand for vegetable oils and certainly for, for grains um, over the quarter. It doesn't look, look like this is going to change. So all of these factors to us suggest that the, you know, the fundamentals remain very tight. Um, the, the core market uh, structure and the curve structure appears to be pricing this. The wheat curve has flattened out a lot, which is surprising to us. We think we'll start to see um, certainly more of a backward-dated uh, curve structure coming to play over the coming months as we realise that actually, you know, there, there is such tight um, available availability of supplies. The oil seed space has been increasingly interesting. Um, you know, it, it, it does look like the, the US soybean crop is, is in, in pretty good shape for the time being. It's something we need to monitor going, going forward. But the domestic crush demand, again, for these biofuel space is super, super robust. Um, so from that point of view, and again, without any improving uh, sunflower oil exports out of Ukraine, you know, the, the global vegetable oil markets are going to remain in our view very tight here for longer. Hence, you know, hence the view that this episode of food price uh, uh, inflation and food security concerns is going to be more durable than previous episodes. And we're really bracing ourselves for a higher price outlook through 2023, Natasha. Mm -hmm. Tracy, thank you so much on that. Uh, so, Greg, moving to metals. Um, so, base metals prices have sold off significantly in the last quarter. Yes, if we look at the uh, the the year-to-day performance uh, between the precious metals and the base metals, they had the weakest performance, which exactly was in line with uh, with your view going into the year. Um, so, uh, exports from Russia have been maintained. Uh, Chinese demand has been uh, very strongly impacted by COVID lockdowns in the second quarter. Uh, uncertainty remains very high, yes, at the moment, especially though so given uh, China's fragile rebounds so far. But you you still hold a bullish outlook on the sector. Uh, can you please walk us through now how you see the rest of the year playing out? Yeah, thanks, Natasha. Um, to me, when it comes down to base metals, the the real quick version of our our, our of our outlook and how we get to this bullish uh, 3Q view really comes down to a recovery in Chinese demand coming quite quickly and surprising a, a, a market here that is really not positioned for it. It's very hard. It's a lonely island, I like to say, in terms of the bullish outlook on base metals. Um, but we do think that the pieces are in place here for a stimulus-driven rebound in Chinese demand. If you look at the, the stocks of metals overall, um, you're still at pretty low levels. Uh, uh, you know, we do think that there's been some build and finish good inventories that will need to be worked down, but that this Chinese demand impulse flowing through in the third quarter on this reopening view that our economists hold will be quite a strong influence to push metals prices higher and tighten up some of these markets in specific, you know, specifically, I think we see the most upside from here in copper. We have a $10,400 per ton 3Q 
forecast. Other markets are somewhat capped from supply dynamics, aluminum, for instance, uh, which we are seeing very strong Chinese supply growth. At the same time, the downside for aluminum looks relatively insulated because of high power cost. Um, if we look now, we're beginning to approach Chinese cost curve support uh, for aluminum smelting. So overall, I mean, the, the view comes down to here, we are beginning to see the cracks in consumption in US and Europe. We do excel, uh, expect an ex, uh, a deceleration in demand growth uh, in those you know, developed market regions. We don't expect the bottom to fall out in consumption. Producers are still reporting relatively robust order books. With that, a Chinese swing in demand over the third quarter and fourth quarter, in our view, still stresses these markets about one more time. Uh, and we do push higher uh, for, for you know, copper and, and zinc in particular, look like the markets that look prone to that. Um, the biggest risk, obviously, would be that Chinese demand underwhelms. And it is a non-material risk here, because as you say, the recovery has been quite fragile. What that would do is essentially then it amplifies the cracks that we're seeing elsewhere. It begins to pull some of the inventory builds that we see in 2023 earlier. And then I think it would also pull our price forecast where we see lower prices sustaining uh, over the course of 2023. That would begin to creep forward if we're wrong on this Chinese uh, you know, demand recovery base case. But for now, we, you know, we still see the, the pieces in place here for stimulus to, to feed through. Thank you, Greg. Um, so just to summarize our views is that uh, despite near record prices, uh, we have so far observed very limited supply response, and that's visible throughout all the commodities uh, under our coverage. So that's pretty much leaves demand destruction as the only balancing mechanism. Yet what we're observing at the moment is that putting more pressure on supply chains that are already creaking policymakers around the world are doing all they can to sustain or even stimulate demand likely prolonging the rebalancing uh, process. Uh, at the same time, further adding to the inflationary pressures, the, the realignment uh, or geopolitical alignment we see in US and European trade objectives necessitates not only this reallocation of supply chains uh, leading to significantly higher cost of production, but also government mandated stockpiling as policymakers are trying to ensure security of supply. So she could cover that, uh, Tracy covered that as well. So our baseline scenario calls for 10% become returned by the end of the summer and then uh, slightly lower to 5% by the end of the year, uh, given strength liquidity and this material supply risk in some of our markets, exposure to commodities could deliver up to a 30% return under our upside risk scenario. So clearly in the case of oil, the secondary sanctions, the insurance sanctions, uh, Tracy covered all the risks around eggs with the Ukrainian uh, with the Black Sea port being uh, still closed and then the weather conditions and then, uh, of course, the, the European natural gas markets are the one that stand out. That all being said, uh, and Greg already alluded to that, uh, macro risks are becoming more two-sided. And it's very important to continue to monitor demand growth at the moment. Um, so this rotation away from goods to services is manifesting in unsold inventories of major retailers. We see this uh, from communications from the major retailers, brands in United States. They, they're sitting on significant amount of in, unsold inventory. So this will likely crimp metals demand growth in the developed markets economies. It should benefit crude and cracks in particular, but at the same time, uh, demand growth will become increasingly sensitive to higher, the higher the prices 
they go and the first cracks in the U.S. gasoline demand is now visible. So thank you so much for listening to the Commodities Edition at JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. Uh, we look forward to continue the conversation next week. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on June 17, 2022.